Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are the organization representing restaurants, bars, nightclubs, in the halls of government, in the media, offering them information, education, everything they need to run a successful business here in the five boroughs. We spend a lot of time advising our clients or prospective clients that the battle on restaurant construction is won or lost before you start hammering nails. It is absolutely all about due diligence. Today, my guest is someone who has an amazing first name. It is Andrew. His full name is Andrew Moger, and he is the president of BCD, a restaurant real estate brokerage and construction management firm. Andrew advised restaurants like Bear Burger, Dinosaur Barbecue, Panera, Five Guys, Union Square Hospitality Group, Dos Toros, The Smith, The Meatball Shop, and yes, the list goes on and on. He is also an advisor to our organization, the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Today, we will chat about restaurant real estate. Uh, construction, the fast casual and full service restaurant industry, a bit about private equity, which I'm very interested in, food halls, ghost kitchens, and more. So if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Please leave a review, share it on social media. We are at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and on Instagram. New York City Hospitality Alliance is also on Facebook. And LinkedIn at our name, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host at Andrew Ridgey on Twitter. And if you're on Instagram, you can find me, Political Foodie NYC. As always, this podcast is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And if you want to learn more and support our cause, go to the NYCalliance.org. Mr. Andrew Moger. Thank you for joining us. Hey, good afternoon. How you doing? Good, good, good. First, I want to thank you for doing all you do for the Hospitality Alliance. You, Lissette, and the rest of your team have really been terrific. Anytime the building department or something with Con Ed comes up, we send over to you, you know, these proposals or these complicated issues that just kind of make my brain break, basically, and you make sense of it. So thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. We're, we're trying to fight the good fight out there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a challenge uh, dealing with some of the city agencies and with some of the uh, utilities, but uh, we think it's important for the, uh, for the restaurant community here in the city. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about your company, BCD. When did you found the company? Uh, what do you do? So I started the business about uh, 18 years ago. We just had, I think we just had our 18-year anniversary. Um, Congrats. Thank you. And uh, really what we do is we focus on two uh, primary services. Uh, first is uh, real estate brokerage. Uh, and the second is uh, construction management. And both of those are focused solely in the uh, food and beverage space. So on the real estate side, we spend most of our time uh, looking for space uh, for restaurant brands, uh, basically identifying markets they should be in, laying out a uh, go-to-market strategy, and then finding locations and negotiating leases on their behalf. Um, we do some work for landlords. Uh, historically, we've held ourselves out as um, advocates for for the tenant and the restaurateur, um, over the past few years, the uh, proliferation of food halls and curated food spaces um, has uh, pushed us to the landlord side a bit, working with developers, uh, trying to figure out how to make use of space that they want uh, to be uh, restaurant food and beverage centric. Um, but historically, and still, uh, the majority of our work is focused on tenants and restaurateurs. Have you seen the market change recently? I mean, 
everywhere I go, I hear people talking about the vacant storefronts in different neighborhoods, how the market has gone up and up and up. I've seen some reports that have said in most commercial corridors, commercial rents have been going down in some areas pretty significantly. Is that what you're seeing? And has that kind of changed the approach of your restaurant clients? Sure. There's definitely has been a softening in the uh, in in rents. Um, I, I personally think there's still some room to go on that. Um, but there has been a softening. What, what we are seeing, though, is that um, even though um, even though there are a lot of vacancies, landlords are still uh, reluctant to move too far off uh, the mark f- uh, unless they really have uh, meaningful faith in the tenants' um, track record, um, financial stability. So there is some softening. There's even you know, tenant improvement money, which landlords are giving out now um, to some tenants, uh, mostly larger developers and REITs who have – the ability to spend that kind of money are doing that. But that, you know, historically in New York City, that never happened. Uh, that's only started in the past few years. Um, but And so that is something that is a relatively new phenomenon. And now uh, savvy restaurateurs, well-heeled operators can take advantage of that. Yeah, I remember for a long time, I would see signs, this is years ago, in the windows, and they'd only want like a dry tenant. They wouldn't want restaurants, they wouldn't want bars, but that's changed. And now it seems like everyone wants a restaurant or a bar. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of that is a function of, you know, um, what is, uh, to some degree, um, you know, the decline of uh, brick and mortar retail. Um, It's certainly not going away um, as, you know, some um, doomsday um, uh, predictors uh, will tell you, but uh, it certainly has decreased and that has created opportunity for restaurant brands. At the same time, there's a lot of money um, from uh, investors, private equity groups that have gone into uh, the restaurant space for the same reasons. And when uh, when investors put money into restaurant brands, they expect them to grow. And so that's where the demand is now for uh, for restaurant space. So I have a whole bunch of questions about private equity, which I want to get to. But before that, you had just mentioned something um, about, you know, landlords are looking for specifics uh, about the restaurant, their experience, how many numbers of units. Um, when you speak with restaurateurs and they're looking to grow, to expand, obviously they need to find brick and mortar spaces to move into, how are you advising them to prepare themselves for, you know, landlords to be interested in a tenant like them? I think in general, my my advice to restaurant brands um, in general, and we do a lot of work with not just New York City-based brands, but uh, uh, national brands and international brands. And the first thing I ask tenants is, do you need to be in New York City? I mean, obviously, I'm born and raised here in New York City. The lion's share of our work here is in New York City. But uh, it goes without saying that it's a very, very complicated and challenging place, and the barriers to entry and the barriers to success are very high. So I always ask people, do you need to be in New York City? And if they do because they feel it's important for whatever reason, maybe important for their brand, um, they just feel they can be successful here, that then they've sort of passed the first test, so to speak. Um, but I always tell people that it's very important in the real estate process to be disciplined. So often you see brands that just open up stores, uh, open up restaurants, because they're in some cases, maybe they're being pressured to do so by their their investors. In some cases, they maybe just feel like uh, they need to strike while the iron's hot. But so often they're going into this process and opening up restaurants too fast, um, too expensively, um, 
without uh, aside from the fact that a lack of discipline around the development process, but also really a lack of bench strength and operations and an ability to run these restaurants in the way that they've had success in their earlier locations. Yeah. Um, so I was excited. I was recently, actually, our most recent episode, Serena Dye, the editor of Eater New York, was on, and we were talking about the big power issue that they did, which is 10 great deep dive stories into different uh, restaurant industry topics in New York City. One of the articles was titled, Meet the Underground Power Brokers of NYC Dining, Restaurant Consultants. And bam, there you are, mentioned multiple times in the article. One of the things that you were quoted saying in that article uh, struck me. You said, our best clients are the ones who have done it once themselves and they never want to do it again. Then you go on, you say something about having the special sauce. So tell me a little bit about it. What's the recipe for the special sauce and why did you say that? Yeah. So, you know, development, the, you know, the other, I mentioned the real estate side of our business. The other side of our business is the construction management services that we provide. And, um, anyone who knows anything about the restaurant business knows that restaurant development is, uh, very challenging, uh, you know, exponentially here in New York City for a number of reasons and truthfully getting harder. Um, getting harder because construction costs have, uh, increased, um, even though rents are lower, um, uh the 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 construction costs development costs have have uh you know have outpaced the real estate costs um so construction costs are higher uh governmental uh, uh issues have become uh more challenging the city is not making it any easier to open up restaurants uh, you have agencies that aren't necessarily speaking to one another um, as clearly as they should be. Um, and then you, of course, have issues dealing with utilities like, uh, you know, getting gas turned on where a lot of times you have restaurants that are finished um, and waiting to open and just can't get the, the gas turned on. So um, so building in New York City is very challenging, always has been getting harder. And I find that clients who say, you know, maybe sometimes they'll look at our, our fees to manage a project and they'll balk at that, say, you know, either we can do it ourselves or we want to do it ourselves uh, oftentimes those people come back to us and say, uh, okay, well, your price um, would have been well worth, you know, well worth it and uh, we're never going to do this again. Yeah, I, I mean, I hear that all the time. One of the things I'm always preaching to restaurateurs is spend the money up front. Listen, I know people don't have huge budgets, especially in this industry, but the cost of just a little screw up or just a little oversight for that matter can really devastate a project and set it back. And I know we've spoken about it, whether it's sure. getting your gas turned on or it's pulling some permit or whatever the issue may be, there's always going to see those unforeseen issues that come up. And I sure. think especially people like you were saying that you speak with saying, do you really need to have a New York City location that come in from elsewhere and don't have experience owning, operating and even you know, opening up or building out a restaurant, they're really in a position where they have no idea what they're getting themselves into. So whether it's, you know, construction or hiring the right labor attorney or the right liquor license attorney, all of these things cost money. But if you try to save a penny here or there unnecessarily, it's going to end up costing you a lot more in the long run. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, really what we bill our services to clients as a uh, as risk mitigation. And really, like like, like you like you mentioned, the other, you know, we have colleagues in the space and attorneys 
companies, um, you know, uh, in different categories and people who specialize in permits and that sort of thing. Um, it's really about risk mitigation. You know, as I said, the barriers to entry in New York are very high, but the penalty for error is very, very high. And so uh, you get it wrong and you don't do the upfront work, um, you can be in a world of hurt. And and then that alludes to, you know, you mentioned our um, the secret sauce that we talk about. So we have a checklist on the construction side of our business. We have a checklist that we've been developing for the 18 years that we've been in business. And that check- checklist is a list of uh, the things that uh, that we know that you – uh, don't know that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Yeah, yeah. And so that is really about risk mitigation as well. And and we add to that list on just about every. And it's literally it's hundreds. It's a it's a bullet. It's a checklist that we use. It's hundreds of items, um, and it is. Uh, it is something that we add to on every project because something new comes up on every project, and that can be something that's just trending in the, uh, you know, in the government agencies that Do we you haven't see. Seen. Are there a couple of things that are going on right now that you tell your clients, listen, we really need to focus on getting this right or doing this, you know, ahead of schedule because we're going to expect delays. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, certainly the gas issue is a big one, and getting that and understand. I mean, when we do. When we approach a project in general, and whether it's the permitting side or the or, or the utility side, it's really a strategy. It's not, it, you know, you can go to, you know, any town USA, and you can have challenges getting open. But it's usually because there's a person behind that desk who is creating the challenge. And it's, it, it, you know, New York City is a large Byzantine uh, web of municipality um, agencies, municipal agencies that make things very hard. Um, not necessarily by definition, but by you. Know, know how how time has you know how how things have uh, transpired over time and so uh, the the things that we're seeing is really a strategy uh, you know it's important to have a strategy around permitting and that's not just um, that's not just filing permits um, you know in in a haphazard way it is really developing a strategy got it so I guess you sit down with your clients you go over you know this is where we're trying to get to we need to do ABC all the way through Z and making sure that you check all the boxes on your list hopefully to avoid unnecessary delays there's always going to be exactly, something that comes up that that's exactly right um so let's talk a little bit about the real estate market which we touched on um what are the types of projects that you see there's a lot of excitement behind you know is it full service is it fast casual is there anything changing in the market right now i see restaurants open i see them close um I was just wondering, uh, you know, your take. Yeah, I mean, certainly fast casual has, you know, over the past few years has become the the bell of the ball. And that's um, obviously a lot of challenges um, operationally in full service restaurants. Um, if you're not operating at a very high level in operational um, excellence, then you're really going to be challenged. So and obviously, a lot of that has to do with labor cost and labor challenges. So fast casual um, is certainly a way that people were, again, not to overuse the phrase, but mitigating the risk around operational challenges by cutting down labor. Um, you're seeing it now even more with technology. And so fast casual continues to be growing at a higher clip than other types of restaurants. Um, of course, there's the emergence of ghost kitchens and, and you know, the different iterations of that that we've seen. And so that is clearly the hot growth segment right now. 
Um, so, you know, I want to go back to something that you mentioned with the um, construction challenges, you know, because there are the vacant storefronts, because restaurants are always opening and closing. Do you see more of your clients now looking for built out spaces that they can go and just do some, you know, kind of minor interior designs uh, versus going into a raw space and building it out? Yeah, across the board, we're seeing people looking for um, former restaurants. Um, I, I do, this is one of the areas that I often caution um, restaurateurs about is the go, you know, is looking for turnkey space or, or second generation space that was a previous restaurant. A lot of times people, and first of all, think that the cost is going to be significantly lower than what it is to build out a new space. That can be the case, particularly if you don't have a prototype that you need to adhere to very rigidly. So for instance, if you see an, ex- a, a, an existing restaurant, second generation space, and you want to open up Andrew's Cafe, mm-hmm. and you can be flexible about what that restaurant looks like, how it operates, then that's a great opportunity. If you are a national brand, an international brand with a with a fairly rigid prototype, you're going to end up moving a lot of things around in that restaurant. And you don't often save a lot of money. I hear clients focusing on the hood the duct work, the bathroom in the right location. Truthfully, you end up trying to fit a square peg into a round hole a lot of the time, and it doesn't always have the uh, cost uh, benefit that one would expect. Got it. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, people have to know what they're getting into. And I think, again, people are in a rush sometimes. They want to open up a place and they don't look through everything that they need to. I mean, the ADA, American Disability Act, um, is one specific area that we always say is, you know, work with a consultant or work with someone that are that is familiar with all of these laws. Because if you go in, New York City has a lot of old buildings. So you go inside into one of these spaces and the bathroom is on the, you know, downstairs. So you got to go down a flight of stairs to go to the restrooms. Well, guess what? You're not compliant. And then you may have to pay however many thousands of dollars to build a restroom on the main floor that is accessible for people with disabilities. And if you do that, you may have to remove, I don't know, two or three tables. And then that's a lot less revenue because you need those table turns and it may not be a viable restaurant anymore. Yeah, I, I can't stress enough what you're talking about there. We spend a lot of time advising our clients or prospective clients that the battle on restaurant construction is won or lost before you start hammering nails. It is absolutely all about due diligence. So when we when we we spend a lot of time looking at projects um, before a lease is signed, it's Hugely, I can't tell you how many times we have clients who come to us after a lease is signed and are start asking questions about diligencing the space, looking at a projected budget, projected schedule. Um, all of that front end work is hugely important to do before you sign the lease. The other thing is we, we do lease reviews for our clients, which are not legal lease reviews. So obviously, uh, clients will have a real estate attorney or should have a real estate attorney. Um, truthfully, real estate attorneys themselves will tell you that we don't really know the right questions to ask about design or construction. And so we do a very, very comprehensive lease review, which I think pound for pound is probably the most valuable service we provide. Um, and that really, uh, oftentimes, we end up, we just killed a deal with a very well-known uh, restaurant brand from the West Coast who just came in here and uh, we're very excited about. Um, and our diligence, we they were pretty deep in negotiations and our diligence ended up killing the deal and it was a it was a good thing that it did and truthfully we have a very very grateful client uh even though they put some money to work with attorneys and with the you know with the diligence process saved them that that amount uh you know many times over so what when you're doing this lease review what are some of the provisions and red flags that you're looking for um 
Could be, uh, you know, some of the more obvious ones are uh, union construction, union harmony, things that will almost by definition increase the cost of construction by anywhere from, you know, 30% to, you know, uh, you know, seventy percent in some cases. So that's a that's an easy one. Um, things like when are uh, are you know contractors allowed to work in the space? Um, you know, can they work on uh, you know what are, are hours that they're allowed to work? Are they allowed to work on weekends? Things like that. Obviously, if you over the course of a project, if a contractor is allowed to work on weekends, you know you can save weeks off the time of the project. Um, the ones that are um, are a little more subtle are things like. Um, uh, delivery of utilities, how the utilities are being delivered. I've mentioned Con Ed here a couple of times, um, Keyspan, things like that. Um, that how the you know a, a typical work letter may say something to the effect of we're going to deliver a three inch gas line to the space. Well, there's a lot more that goes into that in terms of how that that is being delivered, um, what the condition is going to be, where it's going to be located, um, is the meter bar going to be there? You know, is was, was there a previous? Does, you know, um, is it going to be? Uh, uh, how is it going to be submetered? Uh, is it going to be submetered? How is it going to be submetered? So. A lot of that really goes into the coordination at the end of a project that can lead to meaningful delays. Um, so delivery of utilities is an important one. Yeah, I know one of the things working uh, with your team as well and meeting with Con Ed, Con Ed has now agreed to um, kind of give potential tenants, restaurant tenants, um, information about the amount of gas pressure that's going into a building. Because what they've told us is that, you know, over the years, maybe they renovate the residential apartments upstairs and people put ranges in, they put in dishwashers, washing, drying machines, which all, I guess, pulls, uh, you know, from the pressure that could go to your gas in the kitchen. And you can go be ready to open, you go to turn on the gas and you just don't see very strong flames coming out. And then they need to pull permits and they need to dig up the streets to give you a bigger pipe, to give you more pressure. And that can delay the project so long. So that's one of the things that I know we've been working on, making sure that even before you sign a lease, you understand as best as possible everything to do with that piece of real estate as you literally can. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times people are, are just in a rush to get through it. Same way they're in a rush to get through construction documents. A lot of times we have clients who say, we need to start building. We need to start building. I can't tell you how many times we've advised clients that you need to get a good solid set of construction documents uh, and put it out to bid before you start. What's in the construction documents? Everything from uh, everything from the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, you know, the engineering of the space, the infrastructure, to um, – uh, finishes. So, you know, the millwork, the metalwork, um, lighting, uh, and then, uh, kitchen equipment and how that integrates into the, with the, uh, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing documents as well. So a really good set of construction documents. It should not be rushed. Uh, oftentimes people want to see action. They want to see, you know, nails being hammered. It is. I, I can't stress enough how important it is to have a good set of construction documents because the time that you lose in the field is more expensive than the time you lose before you're starting to uh, build. Got it. So knowing all of these challenges, there must still be opportunities because I know you're an investor in a bunch of different concepts. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the brands that you're involved with and how you got involved? Yeah, sure. So, um, and that's actually what I personally spend a lot of my time on these days is on the investment side of the industry. Um, uh, really, the first investment we got into was uh, about 12 years ago when we became investors in Dinosaur Barbecue, which I was love Dinosaur exciting. Barbecue, by the way, <laughs> 125th Street. It's 
where I go with my family all the time, my daughter, the mac and cheese. In the past two years when I ran the marathon, afterwards we go to Dinosaur Barbecue. Yeah, it's great. John Stage, who's the founder, is a good friend and a uh, and a super guy, and he's just done an amazing job with that brand. Um, we built that location up on 125th Street. We re- relocated it from the original location. Um, but so that was an original one where a private equity group uh, invested in the business, and they asked us to get involved um, on diligencing the deal before they uh, made the investment. And there, at the time, Dinosaur had three locations. It had Harlem, and it had uh, Syracuse, the original location in Rochester, and the Harlem location had to be relocated um, because of Columbia University's uh, massive development up there. And um, when you're making an investment in a three-unit business, you have to make sure that the transition will be smooth. So we, we were hired to uh, consult with them on the real estate and construction transition. As a result, they offered us a opportunity to invest in the business, and I sat on the board of that business as well uh, for a, a long period of time. And uh, and that was really the first foray into restaurant investing that we uh, had. Uh, subsequently, uh, I'm one of the founders of Melt Shop Grilled Cheese sure. with, with the guys from Orify Brands. Yeah, um, they're good guys. John Rigos is on our board. And of they're course. Just, they're, they're, they're great. Yeah, so, so uh, John and Andy at Orify were clients of mine. We were doing the development of Five Guys for them, and uh, we uh, became friends, and an opportunity came up uh, in a location that wasn't suitable for Five Guys. We said, let's do something here. We had been working on a donut concept, um, and then uh, unfortunately, the location was right next to Duncan, and so uh, we couldn't do the Duncan, so John uh, actually uh, had the idea, let's do a grilled cheese concept, and Spencer Rubin, who is who runs that business, was working for me as a project manager, and so we moved uh, Spencer into that business, and uh, and then we we opened that location. I, I I subsequently sold my interest in that business back to those guys, but uh, they're still uh, friends of mine, and uh, I always have uh, you know have had a good relationship uh, since then. Um, but so those are those are the early things. Uh, so, uh, as of now, I'm an investor in one of the. Um, largest Dunkin franchisees in the in the world. We have about 110 Dunkins in Long Island, Brooklyn, and Queens. Wow. I know they're one of the chains that has had the most growth among all chains in New York City over the past decade or so. Yeah, they've had tremendous growth. Um, the group that I'm involved in is uh, called Metro Donut, and uh, super, super guys, excellent operators, just really understand uh, that business particularly very well, but our street fighters, they really understand how, uh, you know, that operating restaurants is hand-to-hand combat, and uh, and they're excellent, and that's owned uh, that uh, that's owned by a, a private equity firm um, that uh, I sit on the board of that business, so actively involved in, in growing that business. So tell me, when you, when you say you sit on the board. Um, what does that exactly mean? What's your role? What are you contributing? Yeah, so usually um, when I'm asked to sit on a, a board, um, certainly uh, the investors and the uh, and the operators um, want to avail themselves of my development skills. So it's a it's a voice on the board who can be a resource, uh, particularly around real estate and development. Um, so that's a given. Um, the other part, I do have, you know, some operational investment background. So I understand when I'm talking about real estate and construction, I'm not talking in a vacuum. I am talking with the understanding that Building restaurants, opening restaurants, operating restaurants is about return on investment at the end of the day. And so that I can speak to it with that, um, with that understanding. And then, uh, lastly is just, um, we've been fortunate over, um, you know, the, 
close to two decades that we've been doing this, we've developed really good relationships in the industry, and we can, um, you know, uh, be really good partners to people by providing um, resources outside of our area of expertise. So if they're looking for um, people to uh, provide counsel in accounting, legal, um, human resources, um, operations, we can usually uh, make a connection that will be a uh, value add to the business. Interesting. So then on the flip side, earlier you said that, you know, while you normally represent the commercial tenant going into the space, you've started to do a little bit more with developers and with landlords, particularly when it comes to food halls. So can you talk about your role there? Because that's kind of the opposite uh, type of advice given yeah. on the other end. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's not something we do a lot of. Um, we leave that to to some others to do that. Um, But we do get calls about it just because it is our area of expertise. So for instance, we worked on Essex Crossing. We did a a number of, uh, we we did consulting for them on bringing in a restaurant tenant for the International Center of Photography. Um, uh, That was Taconic Developers and Prusik Group. And so uh, we worked on that project. We've worked with Forest City Ratner, um, now part of, uh, of um, Brookfield uh, in Metrotech in Brooklyn, uh, and we've worked with Gotham on uh, Gotham West Food Hall. So we, we've done a, a, a decent amount of work for these clients. Again, it's something more that we look at, and I think developers look at it for our resources in the restaurant space. So we, we, we still are adamant that we are advocates for the restaurateur, and that's really where we like to focus our time. Yeah. You mentioned Gotham. It's funny. you know That was very early on in these food halls, and, and they're, they're still opening up everywhere. I don't know if they're ever going to reach, you know, the saturation point, but they keep opening. Many of them, at least when I go there, they seem really busy. You're getting some new concepts, which is nice because, you know, it's easy to fill with so many great fast casual concepts, like the same concepts over and over again. So I go to the different food halls and you see there's a couple of like the standard companies, but there's definitely some new, new blood, new concepts that are coming in, which really, which is really nice. Yeah. I think that the, the biggest challenge, the, the food halls have, first of all, they came, you know, I mean, they weren't a new idea, right? They're food courts, but they're rebranded. Yeah. Just like food. fast casual <laughs> is the new fast food. Exactly. So they're, you know, they're, they're, it's not a, it's not a new idea, but um, it is a updated uh, take on it, of course. Um, a lot of the food hall stuff uh, started uh, started proliferating when retail rents were still quite high, and this became an alternative for for restaurant operators to find uh, more cost effective options. Um, as rents come down, um, the delta between even though you still have a more meaningful capital cost to open up a brick and mortar location, the delta between the 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 um, potential return on investment for a food hall space versus a regular brick and mortar space is getting smaller. Um, So I think that's one of the challenges that food hall developers have. I think the other one is um, that food halls are still primarily focused on the lunch day part um, and workers looking for options uh, during the day. Uh, We just finished um, building out the Deco food hall, um, which opened in uh, the Garment Center, which is uh, beautiful. It was just nominated as one of the... um, uh, on a couple of lists is the most beautiful uh, restaurants in 2019. Um, but it is a food hall. It's not a restaurant per se. But what they've done, uh, Doris Wang, who is the founder, is really uh, did something really smart. Was she made the bar the focal point of the food hall. So when you walk in, the first thing you see is uh, this beautiful Art Deco bar um, that uh, – 
is meant to um, spread out the day parts, so not just a lunchtime day part, but uh, after work uh, into the evening. I like that. It changes changes the vibe a little bit. It definitely does, and I think it solves for some of the challenges that that food halls will have um, if they don't do something to extend day parts, either through breakfast or dinner. Yep. Um, so want to transition right there to Ghost Kitchen. So um, I've written about this in Forbes, um, you know, the pros, what I view maybe some of the cons or challenges that they pose long run. The city council is hosting an oversight hearing about Ghost Kitchens, which kind of comes on the uh, backs of hearings they held into Grubhub. While not completely related, perhaps there's some synergies. And I know you've been involved, I think, with the team over at Zool? Yeah, so Zool is um, so Zool is a company we made an investment in, um, and I also uh, serve on their board of advisors. Um, and, um, you know, they're doing something really interesting. Obviously, they're the first, um, they're the first ghost kitchen in New York City um, that is serving, um, that has uh, existing brands as tenants. Um, I think what they're doing that's a little different than some of the other ghost kitchens that uh, exist outside of New York is that they're really focused on um, customer service, guest service in a way that their guests, their customers are the restaurant brands. And so they're trying to do a lot by way of taking care of their tenants um, to make and optimize um, the delivery process. And I I know that is what all ghost kitchen operators will tell you that they do. But I think Corey and Sean over at Zool and their team are doing a really good job at walking the walk in terms of extending the um, uh, extending uh, the hospitality um, to taking a, a a hospitality approach to their tenants, the same way their tenants take a hospitality approach to their guests. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken with them and, you know, I've, I've brought this up. I said, listen, I, I understand why some brands really like ghost kitchens. I see the business model, um, you know, and I spoke with some of the concerns with them, but they really do seem like they want to partner with restaurants. Um, I think, you know, it's early on in the evolution of ghost kitchens. And while there's certainly, um, you know, information and it's obvious the direction where they're going there's still certain unknowns so i'd be interested to see how they evolve and you know we we're talking about food halls and how they continue to grow do you see a huge market in new york city for ghost kitchens or is this potentially something that has more kind of growth ability outside of the city yeah i think both um we actually had been working with uh uh, we weren't engaged in the project but we had talked to a group that is working just outside of new york in one of the suburbs and um uh they are focusing on ghost kitchen markets um ghost kitchens in suburban markets and so what they're seeing is that they're uh and that really focuses um almost as much on the dinner day part as the lunch day part because what they're seeing is that they have their kids at home families at home who are ordering through doordash or or uber eats or or one of those but um and those restaurants are struggling to sort of now start to meet the higher demand in the delivery business, um, the same way restaurants here in New York City have. So I don't think it's I don't think it's exclusive to major metropolitan markets, and I don't think it's exclusive to, uh, or I should say, I don't think it's exclusive to New York City, and I don't think it's exclusive to major metropolitan markets on the whole. All right. Um, so let's talk about some of the other brands that you've invested in or on their boards. Yeah. So. Um, 
So one of the longtime uh, businesses we've been involved in is uh, MexiQ, um, where uh, they were a client of ours. Uh, they were out uh, looking to raise money. We were fortunate uh, enough to help them um, find uh, – uh, uh, some investors, and their one main investor is a gentleman named Sandy Bell, uh, founder of Ruby Tuesdays, who also is an investor in a number of restaurant brands. And so, um, we uh, and we we were uh, we we became an investor at the same time as him, and that business is is gone through you know an iteration of basically being a food truck to a fast casual and now a full service business. And um, under Sandy's guidance and, and Tom Kelly, who runs that business, done a fantastic job. And that business is really, over a long period of time, has changed itself and is doing really nicely now. Uh, we're investors in a number of the uh, the Smith locations. Uh, we, do, we do work uh, nationally uh, for the Smith um, on the real estate side. And, um, and, and Jeff Lefcourt and his team over there are Fantastic operators, arguably the best restaurant operators in the say, city. <laughs> they are. They are incredible. Michael Jacobs, too, is just so sharp. And they've just got a concept. It just seems like they put it somewhere and it works. They are busy. Um, and it's, it's a really great concept. Yeah, it's a great concept. They've managed to get, you know, um, to, to hit on many cylinders. They get, you know, really four day parts and that they get breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they get a, you know, a bar crowd late night. Um, but, you know, they, they also, People say a lot of times people, the Smith, um, you know, they get credit for the business that they do. But, um, you know, people say, you know, the place is fantastic and I'd love to own that business. Um, but I don't understand what the secret sauce is there. And really what I think, again, Jeff, Michael and the team do there is it's hospitality. They really they, they have a saying, which I think is brilliant, which is that figure out a way to say yes to the guest. So often you go into restaurants, not just restaurants, but consumer facing businesses, and you have people who um, take the path of least resistance. And when asked a question, the first thing they do is they say, we don't do that, or we can't do that. We'd love to help you, but we can't. There, Theirs is say yes to the guest. And I think it's a brilliant philosophy. Um, and I think that they've done a great job and they make it look fairly effortless. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of hard work that goes into that business. So yeah. Well, a lot of these successful businesses that look like they are operating seamlessly, it's because they're so meticulous in the background, you know? For it's sure. like when you're doing an event, we do a lot of events and conferences. And I always say to the team, if we plan everything out in advance, going in day of – we should be ready just to show up yep. and then everything should just happen like we planned. But if you go into it and there's too many loose ends here or there, just like a restaurant, things start to fall apart. There's an issue here and then people get a little frazzled. And when people are frazzled, it's a lot more difficult to try to figure out how to say yes to people because you're just trying to figure out how to get the food to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're great at that. They're very thoughtful and methodical and disciplined in everything that they do. Sure. Um, another investment that we actually just exited, which is really the other end of the spectrum from, call it Duncan, um, is Noma in Copenhagen. Oh, sure. So that was an interesting one. We invested in that business a number of years ago. And um, when um, uh, Rene Redzepi bought out his um, his partner, uh, Klaus, his original partner, and then um, and then uh, since then, um, Rene has just bought um, bought us out of that business. So we're um, so we are no, we just exited that business. But that, of course, was. Um, uh, you know, an amazing experience. Sure. Well, they were rated what the top restaurant in the world multiple times, and they're such just an international yeah. destination for 
foodies. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, you know, three years in a row, best restaurant in the world, and then um, closed when they relocated the restaurant. And now, you know, I don't, I don't remember where we were this past year, but uh, what, you know, right up there. And yeah. um, and so that's a that's that was an interesting investment. That was obviously the other end. And then I, I'm involved in an advisory capacity with a number of other businesses: Mighty Quinn's Barbecue, uh, Bear Burger, uh, Salads Up, which is a business in the Midwest, which is focused on a salad business, not terribly dissimilar from other salad businesses, other than uh, we focus on college markets and the uh, and the opportunities in, in college markets, which are a little different than than other uh, other types of um, uh, markets. So before we get to private equity, which is the last thing I want to discuss with you, you mentioned all the different brands. So I heard a couple burger places, some barbecue, um, but then you mentioned a place like Noma, and then obviously there's the Dunkin' uh, franchises. So is there a common theme that ties all of these different and somewhat similar businesses together that make them attractive for you? And that's how you determine what you're going to invest in in the future? Or is it you really just look at every business on its own merits? Yeah, so I would say um, that's a good question. I would say the first thing, um, like any business, not just the restaurant business, but what I look for is uh, partnering with the right people. It, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to the people who are operating the restaurants, and that to me is uh, tremendously important. Um, as I uh, get a little older, I also want to work with people or partner with people that I actually um, enjoy spending time with. Yes. And so the people are important, both from a business acumen standpoint and from a strength of character standpoint. Um, second, of, second of all, I, you know, I look for things that typically restaurants that have, um, you know, are the, where the food is craveable. I think that no matter what is going on in the restaurant, in, you know, in food and health trends, whether it's, um, you know, organic, sustainable, vegan, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, people will always have, uh, will always crave certain foods, and I think that will never go out of style. So, craveability is really important to me. Um, <clears throat> I look for brands, of course, that have uh, – I shouldn't say of course, but have a lot of white space for growth. Um, for me, again, because we do real estate and construction, that's our area of expertise. Um, I'm able to put a, 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 a more keen eye on that and understand the, the restaurant's ability to grow into that white space. Um, so for me, restaurants that have opportunity to grow are interesting. And then, and then lastly, while it's not always a requirement um, – for us to provide services to the brands we invest in, we are able to de-risk our investment um, by providing services. So, for instance, if we're acting as the real estate broker and we're earning commissions um, on a transaction um, for that for that portfolio company or building the space, or I'm serving in an advisory capacity and earning additional equity for that, um, I've de-risked my investment to a large degree. And that's important to me. It's not require. It's not a requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, we just invested in a business in San Francisco called World Wraps, which is one of the original world, uh, one of the original wrap brands, wrap sandwich brands. Owners uh, sold it and buyers uh, messed it up pretty good. So the Founders bought it back. Um, we're not acting in an advisory capacity um, because of uh, geography. They're they're uh, out west, and um, we are not performing any services or acting in an advisory capacity. But uh, we made an investment in that business. Very nice. Um, so finally, private equity. So you hear a lot about it these days, particularly in the fast casual space, but even behind some of these larger uh, multi concept restaurant groups. Can you just tell me a little bit? 
what is private equity um, and why does it seem like there's so much discussion about private equity in the restaurant space these days? Yeah, sure. Well, I alluded to it earlier, you know, with uh, uh, private equity. So first of all, is is just um, groups of investors who are investing in private companies. So you have hedge funds who invest in uh, public companies and private equity funds invest in private companies. Um, and different private equity funds have different types of strategies. They have different size investments. They have different position size positions that they take, minority, majority. Um, they have different um, time horizons on how long they want to invest for. So there's tons of different funds out there with different strategies, different areas of, of – um, of uh, concentration. Um, the, the category that restaurants falls under typically is consumer, and consumer uh, typically consists of restaurant and retail. Um, with the challenges that the retail uh, that retail has had um, over the past few years, a lot of those uh, funds that have invested in retail are now, if they're not already in restaurants, are looking at restaurants more than they have in the past. So that's why there's an increase in private equity investment um, in the rest or interest from private equity in the restaurant space. But um, what there's also uh, family offices, which is a, another type of private equity, which is not uh, typically not money that's raised from outside sources. So high net worth individuals uh, who put together a, a fund uh, to invest their family's uh, wealth will invest in the restaurant space as well. It's kind of lumped together. Family offices gets lumped into private equity. Um, but what I find is that um, – I, I, I talked about the time horizon on private equity um, in the space. Uh, they, uh, family offices tend to have more evergreen capital, which in the restaurant space I think is really important, meaning that they don't have to return money to outside investors as quickly um, if there are any outside investors at all. And so in the restaurant space, uh, it takes a lot of patience, and I think those who can, uh, who can raise money from uh, more evergreen sources will be more successful. Got it. And uh, are there specific concepts you see private equity um, putting their you know eye on and looking to get involved with? Yeah, I mean, you see it again a lot with um, what you're seeing is sort of uh, the fast casuals. Again, there's a lot of excitement around emerging brands um, in the city. Uh, nationwide, but in the city, um, you saw that uh, Dos Toros just got acquired by um, Chopped, which was acquired by, uh, which was owned by El Catterton, who's a big player in the uh, private equity world in the consumer space. Um, and uh, and you're just seeing, uh, you know, in general, that's just the latest. But there's a lot of that in the fast casual space. Um, you are seeing it in the full service space. Um, a lot of those tend to be. Um, more turnaround stories. So there's been a lot of distress in the in the full service and the casual dining space. And so what you're seeing is private equity coming in there and figuring out how to make those businesses better. Got it. Andrew Moger, BCD. Thanks for being a friend of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Thank you for coming on the show. Hope you'll come back again soon and keep doing what you're doing. We'll talk to you next time. I'd like to give a big thank you to our guests for coming in. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share this show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, Political Foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance, 
Find us, thenycalliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.